the views expressed on TMI with Aldous Tyler are not necessarily those of WSUMFM, the University of Wisconsin in Madison, or the Board of Regents. Oh no, my friends, the views for the next hour are all mine. You are listening to the best of TMI with Aldous Tyler. This episode originally broadcast Friday, December 3rd, 2021. TMI will be back with a fresh episode next Friday, December 24th for Christmas Eve. In the meantime, enjoy. TMI with Aldous Tyler for Friday, December 3rd, 2021, coming to you from beautiful Madison, Wisconsin. Um, one of the things that has been pricking at the back of my neck, shall we say, I don't know if, if, if you've ever had a physiological response to something that irritates you mentally, or at least is is just grabbing at you. In my case, sometimes I get a prickling feeling at the back of my neck when I just can't quite let go of something that seems wrong. Well, something that's been causing this physiological sensation, this prickling at the back of my neck, um, is how it is that people will take the expertise of scientists and somehow equate what people on the internet, just random people on the internet, are telling them as far as validity. It's like, how on earth do you do that? Well, there's an answer for that question. I found it, and I found it in a tragic story about a fitness nut and a bodybuilder, frankly, um, just a, a, somebody who was amazingly into sports and fitness, who died of COVID in his 40s, his early 40s. Uh, the story was posted this week uh, at theguardian.com, and it's about someone from, from England. So, you know, you're going to have to uh, bear with me as I convert words and concepts from the Queen's English to what uh, might be a little bit easier to uh, digest here in the good old States. But um, interestingly enough, there is a study on the phenomenon of why people take scientific expertise equally with non-scientific expertise. Uh, in 2009, well before any pandemic was being studied, by the way, um, there was a paper that surveyed people who lived on brownfield sites in Britain. 
then and these sites very well may have been contaminated with pollutants. It's one of the problems with the brownfield sites in Britain. Um, the survey asked the residents who they trusted to tell them about the risks associated with living on the brownfield sites land, right? Okay, so basically the survey is like, all right, you know, you've heard the news that these sites may be contaminated. Who do you trust to give you the overall view on what the risks are when it comes to living on the land? Now, the survey showed most of the people, the majority, maybe not a strong majority, but the majority trusted scientists to tell them the truth, right? But they were almost as likely to take their information from family or friends, despite the fact that the family and friends would have virtually no expertise on the subject. According to the paper, it wasn't that the people responding didn't trust the expertise of the scientists. They did. They knew the scientists were studied and educated and knowledgeable about pollution. So the scientists would have factual data, which is why they were willing to listen to the scientists, right? They knew that part. But the thought was the scientists wouldn't have their individual best interests at heart. Family and friends? Oh, yes. They will have your best interests at heart. They're your family. They're your friends. They'll want to make sure that your interests are looked after. So, we have this strange cognitive balancing act. We know that the facts are best gleaned from those who have studied them intensely. But we distrust people we don't know and we say you know i don't know that that person really has an a grasp of who i am and what i need and so i think i'm going to ask somebody who i know does and see what they have to say right okay now that seems while a little perplexing uh, it could be relatively harmless, okay? And, and the reason for this is, no matter who you are, when you ask your friends or family about something, you can immediately give feedback. The connection you feel to that person, they feel back from you. If you hear something that doesn't make sense, and you ask them to say, well, look, the scientist said this. Why, why do you say that? It's very easy for that friend or family to go, oh, I guess I hadn't considered that. Maybe we should listen to the scientists, right? Or it's very easy for the, for the family or friend to staunchly dig in their heels. And you look at them and go, you know, I know you love me, man, but you're just not making sense right now. Because you have that two-way connection, that intimacy, Right that a friend or family member that you're directly talking to gives you. So while it's not great to take family or friends uh, word above those of scientific experts when it comes to factual matters of harm, at least by doing so, it, it's not as, as bad as it could be. But 
what's happened now, these days, at least, is that we're no longer just taking the word of family and friends as if they are family and friends. We're looking at people, looking to people, I should say, to give us guidance in that family and friends role who don't know us, who we may never meet, who most likely will never meet, who most likely will never even talk to, even once, even in an email, even in a text message. In this age of social media, we are getting our information from people the same way we would from a family or a friend, um, family member or friend. They're telling us what they believe is right. And it's a very intimate feeling thing to us. We, we watch this and we go, yeah, you know, I, I, I feel a connection to this person. I think that they're trying to tell me what they believe is right. And I'm going to go with that. That feels, that feels true to me, right? Okay. But it's one way. Unlike an actual conversation with an actual friend or actual family member, there's no feedback. There's no watching how they respond if you happen to question what they have to say. There's no seeing if they actually wind up stepping back from the opinion they're stating if confronted with a scientific fact. There's no realizing that maybe they're not horribly reasonable on a topic and after conversing directly with them a couple times and deciding that maybe this isn't a good source of information for you. None of that occurs with these social media sites where, and I'm talking specifically like YouTube, where you've got people who are putting out content, right? some of whom may be truly sincere. But even if they're sincere, can be misinformed, of course. I mean, it, misinformation happens. Let's not even for a moment pretend that misinformation is something that you won't find in human conversation. It just pops up. I'm constantly fact-checking myself. And if somebody can provide me, by the way, with um, a solid factual basis that shows that what I've said in the conversation is incorrect. And it doesn't have to be like anything too strenuous, especially if I just popped off something that I believed was correct. And they went, oh, no, no, it's actually this. I'd go, oh, cool. Okay. I'll accept that and uh, integrate it and move on. And I'm willing to do that because I understand that I may have misinformation, you know, it, it, in, on some issues. Before I come on the air, I work very hard to make sure that I've just strained as much misinformation out of what I've read as possible. I try to make sure that I'm giving you as clean and clear a view as possible. I'm not saying I'm perfect, and I always invite you to double-check anything that I'm giving you. That's why I tell you where I get my information from. Like in this case, this is theguardian.com. Um, the, uh, the piece is called The Life and Tragic Death of John Ayers, fitness fanatic who refused the COVID vaccine. 
Uh, it was published on um, Tuesday, November 30th. If you ever want to check what I'm talking about here. Um, but back to what I was talking about. It goes even deeper than accidental. You see, it's really hard to make a living on social media or even make any money at all. And one of the ways you can bring money in is to ensure that people click your video. Make sure that people see something that um, sparks their interest. So they click on your video and watch it. It's called clickbait. Um, and some is more obnoxious and, uh, and frankly deceptive than others. Um, but basically, it's a matter of you have an article that says a new COVID variant looks like it could be um, more contagious, results unclear on if it's more um, deadly, and it could very well be more vaccine resistant. That's what the article says that you are using for the basis for your YouTube video, let's say, or Twitch stream for the day or whatever. So when you post, you make a title, but you want a title that'll get people's attention. Breaking new COVID strain resistant to vaccine question mark more deadly question mark more contagious exclamation mark. Check it out. Now, what's happened right there is even if, okay, even if somebody goes, oh, my God, another COVID video. I'm not, I'm not clicking on that. They have read your headlines. They've read that clickbait. And in the back of their head, they know, because it's, it's a brand new video out there, that there's information out there indicating there's a new strain and uh, that this new strain is bad news. Now, is that actually the case? Maybe, but maybe not. The source article you were going to uh, go into in your video, once people actually click on the link and get you to talk about it, is much more uh, uh, cautious and honestly doesn't know. You know, but your clickbait headline is put out misinformation. Now, if this is somebody who follows you, who is subscribed to your channel, um, and maybe they don't even watch the video, or maybe they do, doesn't really matter. The fact is, if they've watched other videos by you, if they've taken other content in from you, and they like you, they like your presentation, they like who you come across as, well then, they're going to take even that clickbait headline as being some uh, piece of information coming from someone that they consider a, a friend or family member. Well, maybe not family member, but point, point is they consider it a friend telling them something. So all of a sudden, landing in this place in the human mind where we give priority to information from friends is this piece of clickbait 
right? Unchallenged, um, totally inflamed from what it actually would have been. But there it is. Then later on, you hear that uh, maybe you might even run across the article yourself about, hey, there's this strain and, you know, it's it's not actually going to be any worse. It's not great, but it's not actually going to be any worse um, when it comes to severity. Um, maybe it's going to be a little bit more contagious, but uh, looks like the vaccines have it under control. Well, here's the thing. You're going to go, okay, yeah, that's, that's, I, I hear you, you know, Mr. Official Scientist, but my friend over here thinks it's going to be worse. So I'm, I'm going to be even more panicked about this. Well, that's, that's the very dynamic we're talking about. And what I gave you, the example I just gave you is a very benign version. I say benign. Because this is just an example of a social media influencer trying to just basically get clicks, just get the views, as they say, just get the views. It, it's There isn't anything really malicious about it. And what's in the headline isn't necessarily lies, just exaggerations, um, you know, extra dramatic twist on things to get you to to hopefully view the video, right? But there are plenty of influencers out there who are nowhere near as um, innocent. So, again, the article that I was reading, and I'm not going to go deep into the article because the article is a very detailed and personal, um, very detailed, very personal expose on the life of John, this this fitness enthusiast. Um, And... frankly, I don't know that all of you would be terribly interested in those details, but what matters to you and me on this, John was a fan of Tony Robbins. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with who Tony Robbins is, but he's this really bright toothed, um, just high, high adrenaline motivational speaker. Okay. And that brand of speaking has earned him an estimated fortune of, over half a billion dollars. All right. Um, he has a private island in Fiji, right? He has celebrity fans that include Serena Williams, uh, Hugh Jackman. Well, Tony Robbins, he's steered clear of outright giving anti-vaccine statements, but he's made comments throughout the pandemic that played down the severity of COVID or imply that lockdown restrictions are overblown, right? Now, you might go, well, Aldous, that's a celebrity. Yeah, 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 hang on. Tony Robbins' whole style is very, very much the style that you will see among fairly, uh, among a lot of your um, successful YouTube influencers and TikTok influencers and things. And People will take his information as if Robbins is some sort of trusted friend. Interestingly, Tony Robbins has also touted a COVID vaccine. He said, yeah, there's actually a good COVID vaccine, right? He says the one developed by COVAX, a company that, by the way, has received funding from a venture capital firm where Robbins is a partner. 
that COVAX's COVID vaccine is a good thing. Now, by the way, just to be clear, Tony Robbins has made no secret of that financial interest in the company of COVAX. But even then, people go, yeah, but that Tony, you know, he's got his head on straight. He's, he's a good guy. I'm, I'm going to listen to him. In September of 2020, Tony Robbins posted a link to an article that said that lockdowns, uh, that said, by the way, falsely, that lockdowns had achieved almost precisely nothing with regard to COVID. No deaths were prevented. That's ridiculous. First of all, <laughs> um, let's just go and straight say, before we even say whether or not there's factuality to uh, the claim, let's go in and note that it's really difficult to prove a negative and to say that no deaths, no deaths uh, were prevented by the lockdown. That's, you, you can't make that claim. There's just no logical way. It's ridiculous on its face. But then a fellow like Tony Robbins posts a link to this and goes, yeah, check it out. Look at this. Well, and you're like, huh? Well, this guy, I think is a good guy. He's, he's posting this. Robbins doesn't have your best interests. Unlike your friends and family, Robbins wants to continue to make money. He's invested in a venture capital firm that's invested in the COVAX company that's making COVID vaccines. So he tells you that one's good and the rest are, are horrible, right? And he's built this whole thing around being this you know, trusted advisor status that he knows the secret behind living your best life, being a motivational speaker and all that. And with all of that, with that charismatic, I'm your friend, I'm the one who really has your interests at heart, he is spreading this information out there that's patently false. As an example, he appeared, uh, Tony Robbins appeared in a conference in Florida where he mocked Australia's COVID restrictions. He cast doubt on the efficacy of vaccines, except for the one his company was making, and told a cheering audience not to let fear be the thing that controls you. Now, John, the, the subject of the story from The Guardian, had said that one of his beliefs was we shouldn't live in a climate of fear around COVID. If you were young and fit and well, you'd be fine. See, here's the thing. John was getting that information, not just from the likes of giant snake oil salesmen like Tony Robbins. He was getting that from others who we're getting it from not just Robbins, but other people. But it was it was a big echo chamber out there of people who John never really met. But he was taking it as if his friends were directly telling him this. Now, here's the thing. This assumption that John had wasn't entirely wrong. 
young and fit and well generally did pretty well with COVID. Uh, Basically, John was extremely unlikely to die from COVID. He was physically fit. He was 42 years old. No known underlying conditions of any kind, right? The COVID mortality rate for people in that age range with no underlying health conditions uh, was about one in every almost 1,500 people infected, right? Pretty low. But here is where the calculus went way off, right? There's a risk-to-benefit ratio you got to understand with COVID. If infected, someone who is unvaccinated is 30 times, sorry, 32 times more likely to die from COVID than someone who's been vaccinated. So, yeah, vaccination doesn't always prevent infection, especially when you got these stupid variants coming up. But the vaccination does demonstrably reduce the risk of dying or having more severe side effects from COVID. Now, your Tony Robbins of the world and your social media influencers who buy into the misinformation out there will tell you vaccination carries a risk of side effects, right? Yeah, that risk is way, way smaller than the risk of being unvaccinated during this pandemic. Here's a, here's um, a clue. In the UK, right? They have over 46 million people who are fully vaccinated in England. Of them, only 77 of those people died of blood clots that were related to getting the COVID vaccine. Now, uh, I don't know about you, but that's just an incredibly low number when you consider things. And if you will uh, allow me, we can really quickly do 77, right? Divided by 46,300,000. My calculator hates me right now. Basically, what you're looking at at that point, 77 out of 46.3 million is less than one. It looks like less than one in um, hundreds. Yeah. Basically, you've got yourself well less than one in 200,000 people vaccinated will have blood clots that cause death from getting vaccinated. So while one out of every 1500 will die who get infected, one out of every 200,000 die from getting vaccinated. Guess which one's more likely to kill you. Okay. Now, there's this huge, <clears throat> pardon me, huge asymmetry of risk. Uh, Dr. Tom Stafford, a psychology lecturer at the University of Sheffield, and by the way, one of the people who produced that 2009 study I was quoting earlier, um, said if you can get away with things that have a low probability, you don't know how dangerous they are until it's too late. 
An example is driving without a seatbelt. Most of the time, you're absolutely fine, right? You, you don't crash your car. So if you don't have a seatbelt on, it doesn't matter. But that one time you get in an accident, things can get very bad very quickly because you are not properly restrained. Well, that's the vaccine. It's a low probability event. One in 1,500, relatively low probability event that you'll get the virus and need hospitalization. But if you do, that's where the vaccine makes it 32 times less likely you're going to die from getting infected enough to be hospitalized by COVID. Ta-da! So that's it. It's not saying that the seatbelt stops car crashes. It's saying the seatbelt helps keep you from dying in car crashes. So the vaccine doesn't stop you necessarily from being exposed to COVID and possibly even being infected by COVID. But if you are infected by COVID, it keeps you from dying. But John here, he had made his decisions about vaccination, especially for COVID, um, based on the idea that Tony Robbins and other social media influencers that um, didn't necessarily have any, not only didn't have his best interest in mind, didn't know him at all. He took them as if they were a trusted friend. He took their word as if what they were saying was just as valid as learned scientists, learned virologists, learned people, people who have studied most of their lives on how infectious diseases work. He took these other people as equally valid based on our human tendency to take friends and family's word at almost an equal level with those who have actual knowledge. Before he died, John told the doctor treating him how much he regretted not getting the vaccine. The doctor said he was beating himself up so much before they put him on the ventilator. He was saying, why didn't I get vaccinated? Why didn't I do it? Why didn't I listen? You see, and here's the real problem, and this is the real issue that we're having right now with this particular thing. Actual friends and family of John, his twin sister, Jenny, for example, um, his parents, his actual friends too, they all were telling him, dude, you really should get vaccinated. Why don't you get vaccinated? It's a simple thing. The risks are low for the vaccine and they take away so much risk from dying and all this. And he was all like, no, no, it's, it's untested. I'm not putting it in my body. I don't, I'm not going to be a guinea pig, blah, 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 blah. Right. He was even, his brain had latched on so much to these strangers recommendations that he was even putting those recommendations above the actual recommendations of actual friends and family. So he's left at this moment in his life when he's in a hospital, when he's been, when he's been vomiting up blood and losing sleep doing it in a hospital where he has to go on a ventilator because he can't get enough oxygen. 
he's spending this moment, what little breath he has gasping out, why didn't I get vaccinated? Why didn't I do it? Why didn't I listen? That's the reason, by the way, his family agreed to share his story with The Guardian. His twin sister, Jenny, says he probably wouldn't be dead if he'd had the vaccine. It's really quite simple. He he made a bad decision, and we all make bad decisions all the time. But he paid the ultimate price for it, which is, is so unfair. His twin sister, Jenny, says that she just wants people to be vaccinated, and, and if they have doubts, get actual medical advice, not advice from the Internet. Face-to-face doctors realize that COVID is brutal. She's struggling to adapt to life without her twin brother. 42 years. 42 years. Can you imagine having a twin for 42 years? And because that twin had been infected, if you will, with a a thought contagion that that all of a sudden they, uh, they couldn't keep themselves safe from an actual infection of virus that then took their lives. Jenny says, I don't know that it will ever feel real. How can my healthy, outgoing, silly brother be dead? It just doesn't make sense in my brain. How can I be a twin without a twin? Look, the bottom line is this. You don't have to have a twin sibling to have people who will be left behind wondering how on earth it is that they'll never get to see you again. Wondering how, how it can be that this lifetime that they had with you had been cut short simply because you took the advice of total strangers without expertise as if they were trusted friends and that it cost you your life. Don't let that happen. Please don't let that happen. You're listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler. We'll be right back. I imagine that right now you're feeling a bit like Alice. Tumbling down the rabbit hole. You're listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler. On WSUM 91.7 FM in Madison. Hallelujah. You're my savior, man. No one personal Jesus Christ. It's your cure for the common media. Airing every Friday at 5 p.m. Central. Podcasting every Monday evening. You like it? I think he likes it. Want some more? Oh, yes. Check out TMI, TMI, TMI TMI.com for podcasts and all things TMI. I know Kung Fu. Show me.
Aldous Tyler. Moving on into the world of scientific discovery, looking for a story to tell you that is, you know, maybe less frightening and completely failing. <laughs> all right, all right. It might not be terrifying. It, it just depends on your point of view, I guess. But um, for decades now, science fiction has been telling us that uh, it's a bad idea. Very, very bad idea to uh, give artificial um, creations like robots the ability to make more of themselves. That uh, being able to self-replicate is a recipe for them deciding that, you know what? Yeah, we're going to make enough of us to make sure that we can, you know, whatever the purpose is. Um, in some of your simpler and more silly uh, examples, the uh, robots just decide that uh, they're going to uh, take over and wipe everybody out. Uh, in plenty of other ones, they have um, 
strange, shall we say, uh, views of their purpose. They say, well, we're here for humankind's benefit, and humankind is not to humankind's benefit. So that's why we have to kind of put y'all on a leash, um, suppress you, or even wipe you out. It's just you are you're no good for yourself. So, you know, it was but anyway, it all comes back to robots making robots, if you will. Well, guess what's happened? <laughs> um now uh, last year, um last year U.S. scientists were very, very proud to say that they were able to take stem cells from the African clawed frog, uh, Xenopus levius, by the way, and create um, basically little multicellular beings that would respond to how they were built. So you were able to build the stem cells in such a way that these multicellular beings would be programmed basically by their design to function in a certain way. They're like, yay, look at that. We were able to do that. And as such, uh, because these were stem cells from Xenopus uh, leveus, um, they called them Xenobots, X-E-N-O bots, if you're going to be doing the old Google. Um, and uh, they were like, yes, isn't this great? These are less than a millimeter. They're, they're, they're four hundredths of an inch wide. Um, tiny little blobs. And uh, it showed, experiments showed that they could move, work together in groups, and heal themselves, self-healing. And as such, they referred to them as biological robots. Well, now the scientists that developed these original uh, robots at the University of Vermont, uh, Tufts University and Harvard University's Weiss Institute for Biology, um, said they have discovered an entirely new form of biological reproduction, different from any animal or plant known to science. That's right. Completely new form of reproduction discovered by observing what the xenobots were doing. Michael Levin, a professor of biology and director of the Allen Discovery Center at Tufts University, uh, co-lead author of new research, said, he, I was astounded by it. Frogs have a way of reproducing that they normally use, but when you liberate the cells from the rest of the embryo, so it's no longer a frog, it's just the stem cells from the frog, and you give them a chance to figure out how to be in a new environment, not only do these stem cells figure out a new way to move, but they also figure out apparently a new way to reproduce. Now, I understand. You're like, well, robot, Aldous, these are stem cells. Okay. But stem cells are unspecialized cells that have the ability to develop into many different cell types. To make them Xenobots, the researchers scraped living stem cells from frog embryos and left them to incubate. No manipulation of genes involved. No, none of that. Now, Josh Bongard, a computer science professor and robotics expert at the University of Vermont, also lead author of the study, says that most people think of robots as made of metals or ceramics. But, but it's not so much what a robot is made from, but what it does, which is to act on its own on behalf of people. In that way, xenobots are robots. Clearly, though, 
also their organisms made from uh, genetically unmodified frog cells. Now, Bongard said they found that the xenobots, which were originally round, just sphere-shaped, and made from around 3,000 cells, could replicate, which, again, that startled them. But it happened really rarely and only in specific circumstances. They used kind of a, a, what's called a kinetic replication, which is known to occur at the molecular level, but it's never been observed before at the scale of whole cells or organisms. So that's what it's saying, that this kind of reproduction has never been seen in any plant or animal, just on a molecular level. So with the help of artificial intelligence, the researchers tested all sorts of different body shapes, billions of body shapes to make the xenobots more effective at doing this kind of replication. The supercomputer came up with a C shape, a shape kind of like a capital C letter that resembled in some ways a Pac-Man in the 1980s video game. Uh, they found that that shape was able to find tiny stem cells in a Petri dish, gather hundreds of them inside of its mouth opening, if you will. And a few days later, the bundles of the cells became new xenobots. So basically with this, by creating the xenobot shape to specifically be designed to gather stem cells together, um, they were able to essentially program these little stem cell life forms to make more of the stem cell life forms. Th to be clear, the AI didn't program these biological machines, like we usually think about writing code, right? It shaped and sculpted and came up with the Pac-Man shape. The shape, in essence, is the program. The shape influences how the xenobots behave to amplify this really surprising reproductive process. Now, um, to be clear, by the way, the xenobots are very early tech, uh, very early in their technological um, uh, cycle. Think of computers back in the 1940s, right? And they don't yet have any practical applications, right? Um, but this combination of molecular biology and artificial intelligence could, you know, potentially be used in a host of tasks, both in the body and in the environment. I mean, it could include things like collecting microplastics in the oceans or uh, inspecting root systems and regenerative medicine. Now, that's all good, right? And clearly, you can see how that could be. This could be a really good thing. We could use this tool in ways that we would have no other tools that could do the same thing. Um, but of course, as I, as I started off saying, um, for decades, we've been fed the idea that self-replicating critters that we originally made, the self-replicating robots, if you will, uh, could, could be concerning. Um, the research, researchers, however, say that these living machines are entirely contained in the lab. They're easily extinguished. They're easily just done. Um, and, and they're biodegradable and regulated by ethics experts. So basically at this stage, at the very least, xenobots um, will immediately get eaten up by the environment. They're biodegradable. And there are ethics experts just hovering over their shoulders going, what are you doing? What are you doing? 
Now, just so you know, the research was uh, partially funded by DARPA. That's the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. That's the federal agency that oversees the development of technology for military use. Um, but just so you know, um, there's a lot of things that we've gotten out of DARPA over the years that uh, has more than military um, applications. Um, you're probably using it right now. DARPA is why we have um, the Internet. The Internet was originally ARPANET, which is part of you know the Department of ARPA, if you will. But, so ARPANET was the Advanced Research Projects Agency Internet. Um, or and and that's what was the basis for the entire internet at that point. So, yes, DARPA partially funded this. Yes, clearly, um, as almost anything out there, the military will always be looking at science, going, "Huh, how can we use that to make war?" Um. So you know, in full disclosure, yeah, they partially funded it. Doesn't necessarily mean that we have to worry about uh, Xenobots being used in weaponry, at least, you know, yet. But um, but no, it just means that basically uh, that they thankfully were able to get some funding that way. And uh, again, in this capitalist society, you got to get the money if you want to do the research, right? Um, anyway. Bongard, uh, again, the robotics expert and uh, co-author, noted that there are many things that are possible if we take advantage of this kind of plasticity and ability of cells to solve problems. And uh, in case you're curious, by the way, the study was published in the peer-reviewed scientific journal PNAS on uh, Monday. Um, so if you have access to PNAS, feel free to go check out the study um, and uh, see what I'm talking about. It's really uh, fascinating. And for somebody who is a fan of technology, well, I warmly welcome our Xenobot overlords. <laughs> You're listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler. We'll be right back. Down. I'd mess me around and then worst of all, never thought, baby, when you say you will. But 
me know Although you are true, I'm attracted to you all the more Why do I need you so? Baby, baby, try to find a little time I'll make you happy I'll be home, I'll be beside the phone waiting for you Why do you build me up? But if I'm baby, just to let me down Welcome back, and thank you for listening to TMI this week. Um, for the last three minutes here, I wanted to touch on something that uh, I've, I've spoken about before, but there's been some specific um, reporting on this subject that I think is of interest. Um, as restaurants are continuing to struggle to fill open positions, thanks to the, uh, the great resignation, as some call it, or basically <laughs> the fact that employees aren't willing, to, aren't willing to put up with the crap that they were willing to put up with uh, anymore. Um, some owners have realized that one obvious solution is to raise employees' baseline wages. An example of this is a Manhattan restaurant called Dirt Candy, uh, that, uh, for indoor dining this past May, uh, the owner, Amanda Cohen, increased her staff's starting pay to $25 per hour across the board. Um, she also gives raises based on tenure, along with paid time off health insurance. Now, um, it's kind of funny because of course <laughs> the, um, the guardians, if you will, of, uh, conservative business immediately were like, well, wait a minute, we got to go down and talk to this person. So Ryan Knudsen of the wall street journal goes down and, and, uh, and decides that she's, he's going to uh, talk to Amanda and say, Hey, hey, hey all right, all right. Um, Let's get down to the nitty gritty. You've raised your wages to $25 an hour. And Amanda's like, right. So he says, and has raising your wages to $25 an hour created any new challenges or new problems for you? Amanda Cohen goes, no, it solved every single problem I had. We are actually making money for the first time in a really long time as a business. I'm not going to bed. Worried that my staff isn't going to show up. They're here every day and they're engaged. I only see the pluses in it. <laughs> this was not uh, the answer that uh, intrepid reporter for Wall Street Journal Ryan Knudsen probably wanted, but it's the truth. So basically, what's happened is this we, the worker class, if you will, are showing the way. Um, we're not the only ones who had been duped, you know. We're not the only ones who had had uh, this lie fed to us that the only way to run a business was to run your um, uh, employee compensation as tight to the margins as possible. Don't pay a cent more than you have to for the work that you get. Um, and everything, you know, you, that that's the only way to make a proper profit. Well, 
business owners were fed that lie too. And now that we, the workers, are demanding better, and some of the owners are actually trying to make things better for the workers, they're discovering, wow, my business is working like never before. And all because I decided to listen to the needs of my workers. You've been listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler. And if you want to see the world for how it really is, take a deep breath, then let it go. Remember what matters to you, and then you'll be ready to see the world for how it truly is. And all you'll have to do is simply... Oh!